Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. Even before I took an interest in church history, I had heard of this story. And it turned out that one of the dearest families of my early years as a member of the church, the Hall family, Ron and Helen Hall of Rexburg, turns out that this next story is about one of their ancestors. Let me explain something before I get into the story. The concept of Zion. Perhaps it meant more to those mid-19th century saints than it means to us. To us, rather, we sometimes have an abstract idea that Zion is this somewhere, sometime, some millennial day, this perfect civilization of people, some sort of Christ-centered utopia. But in the 19th century, Zion was a little more down-to-earth. Zion was where the prophets were. Zion was where the saints were gathered. Zion was the people of God. Zion was the holy temple. Zion was where you could go to church and fellowship with the saints and prosper with them. That was Zion. It was real. It was tangible. And it was a goal as burning as anything could be. Now the story. Many years ago, in Scotland, a land that I love, I'd love to take you there, there lived a small but strong woman by the name of Mary Murray. While still young, Mary's husband, James, was killed in a mining accident, leaving her with seven children to care for. Mary worked hard. They lived on oatmeal and potatoes and salt. As the children grew, they hired out. Eventually, they were able to build their own thatched roof cottage. They had none of the world's wealth, but they knew love in that humble home. Then missionaries came and taught the family the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of the children immigrated to the United States, promising that they would send for Mary later. Finally, in 1856, At the age of 74, we Granny Murray, she was called, set out on the 6,000-mile journey to Zion. For six weeks, she endured the hardship of ocean travel, followed by a trip across the country to Iowa City by rail. And then, in late July 1856, We Granny began the last leg of her journey to Zion, pulling a handcart with the Martin Handcart Company. Now, as you know, it was late in the season. And those people knew that it was late in the season. They walked to their limits every day, knowing that they were pressed for time. But for We Granny, it was too much. October 2nd, 1856, 
near Chimney Rock, Nebraska, wee Granny Murray lay on the prairie, breathing her last. She is quoted as saying, Tell John, I died with my face toward Zion. And there they buried her on the trail. She died believing that she never made it to Zion. But from the moment we granny set her heart on being one with the Lord and his people in faith, she was already there. There's a personal rest of the story. I don't know if I can tell you this. After Dennis and I began the production of the History of the Saints television series, we went out on a filming trip. We were going to tell the story in our first season of History of the Saints about Brigham Young and the journey of the saints to the Valley of the Great Salt Lake. And so we went back to Nauvoo and we started at Carthage Jail and we went everywhere from Carthage Jail, Nauvoo, Parley Street, across the river, Linger Longer Park, Garden Grove, Pisgah, Winter Quarters, and all the points, all the way back to the Salt Lake Valley, filming, shooting pictures, getting ready for our first of what would be seven seasons of church history. I remember that day we pulled off the main highway near Chimney Rock. We drove up to the visitor center just at five o'clock, and the ranger closed the door so we couldn't go in. But Dennis had been there before, so we jumped back in the Jeep and took off further to the south towards the butte. Dennis knew a place where we could shoot, and we wound up this dirt road and went up on top of this foothill bluff and parked the Jeep in this dirty old muddy parking lot, and Dennis got out his camera and shot to the west at Chimney Rock. And it was gorgeous. Oh, mama, it was gorgeous. Well, as pretty as it was, I didn't have a camera. I was kind of like a third wheel on a date. What am I going to do? So I just began to wander around. And I noticed not too far away that there was a little white picket fence. As I recall, I think it was a white picket fence. And I walked over there and stepped through the gate. And there was a brand new, newly erected headstone with the name Wee Granny Murray. I had no idea that this is where she had died. I knew the story. I felt like I was standing on holy ground. Wee Granny Murray, all these years, has been one of my heroes. Next story. Some people may think that this story is no big deal, that this isn't worthy of someone to be called a hero. But you know what? It is to me, and I'm telling the story. May 1848. Elisha Groves and his wife, Lucy, set out from the Missouri River on the journey to the Valley of the Great Salt Lake, May 1848. They were among nearly 2,000 people traveling in a very large wagon company journeying west. Passing through Indian country, they were told 
not to stop their wagons for their own safety, but to keep the wagon train unbroken and don't pull out. One day, somewhere in Nebraska territory, Lucy attempted to climb out of the wagon, but being weak and sickly from having recently delivered a child, she slipped and fell under the wheel. The front wheel passed over her body, breaking three ribs in the process. Her husband, who was walking nearby, presumably driving the oxen, saw the predicament, ran back, grabbed Lucy, and tried to pull her out from under the wagon, but he only got partway in the back axle, passed over one of her her legs, and broke her leg. The captain came quickly, set Lucy's leg, and gave her a blessing, assuring her that she would reach Salt Lake in good condition. Well, they set up a large bed in the wagon. And for the next several days, Lucy was confined to her bed in the wagon as the company moved on. Her leg was mending well and all was going along just as it should. And it was expected that she would be up soon and walking. Then nine days later, after the incident with the wagon, they were in camp. Lucy was sitting by the fire. Her daughter, who was helping to make dinner for the family, accidentally tripped over her mother's leg and broke it again. This time, the pain was so much worse. Now, I don't know if you've ever ridden in one of these hard pan wagons, but they don't have a suspension in the 19th century. It would be sometimes more punishing and violent to the body, even for a healthy person, to ride in the wagon than it was to walk. And for Lucy, in extreme pain, riding in the wagon was bringing agony upon her. Finally, she cried out to her husband and asked him to stop the wagon, pull the wagon off the trail and stop. She could not bear to go any further. The captain saw the wagon, the Grove's wagon, pull out of the line and he came riding up immediately to investigate. With tears coursing down her cheeks, Lucy explained what had happened and urged the entire company, go on without us. The captain replied, he would do no such thing. He stopped the entire company, had them make camp. He then instructed some of the men to come to the Grove's wagon. They took Lucy's four-poster bed and cut all the legs off, leaving only the rope-laced mattress part which they slung between the bows of the wagon, effectively creating a free-swinging hammock. This done, he then gave Lucy another blessing and promised her that she would live for many years. That's not all. For the next several days, that busy captain of a wagon company of 2,000 saints rode beside Lucy's wagon to make sure that she had no further trouble. Lucy's grandson later wrote of this event, quote, with this gentle, kind manner, President Brigham Young, the captain, the wagon master, won the love of Lucy and her posterity forever, end of quote. 
I don't know if in this world today, heroes are very often associated with kindness, mercy, compassion, forbearance, love. They probably should be. I may have told this one earlier, but if I did, it was early on. And and this is a story that I'm indebted to Bill Hartley for. He shared this with me, and I've loved it ever since I first heard it. Barnard White was born in Great Britain. He was a boy of culture and class and well-raised. He was taught to be a gentleman of breeding. And her mother prided herself on that. They joined the church. And then in July of 1855, dressed in a new broadcloth suit and silk hat, 15-year-old Barnard was sent off on a journey to the United States to prepare the way for his family who would follow the next year. He would go first. You imagine sending out your 15-year-old son to the other side of the world to prepare the way for the rest of the family, that in and of itself makes the boy a hero. I was about to say, today I wonder if most 15-year-olds can see beyond a cell phone, but I didn't say that. One day at sea, journeying across the Atlantic, a sudden gust of wind picked up that fine hat sitting on Barnard's head spun it right off his head and out into the sea. Now he would go to America like every other bareheaded immigrant boy. Well, he landed on the East Coast, and work was hard to come by. So he took a job as a cow milker. And in those days, a cow milker didn't have a machine. It was the way I grew up, you know. It's the old-fashioned way. He took a job as a cow milker, trading in his fancy broadcloth suit and nice shoes for sturdy work boots and rough work clothes. Well, over the course of that next year, Barnard toughened up and became a man. Then on the 20th of June, 1856, Barnard met his family at the docks in Boston. His older sister took one look at him and cried, quote, My poor brother Barnard, what have they done to you? I can just see the thought. What have those barbaric Americans done to you? Well, soon all the thoughts of judging his attire were overshadowed by the maturity and ability of this young man. The family traveled across the country to Iowa City and were assigned to be a part of the Hunt Wagon Company. Now, if you recall, the Hunt and Hodgett Wagon Companies left Iowa City late, behind, behind the Martin and Willie Handcart Companies. The Hunt Company was the last immigrant company to leave Florence, Nebraska, on September 1st, 1856. All hoped that they would make it to Utah before winter came and prayed it would be, but it was not meant to be. October 19th, 1856, snow came to Wyoming. Right, the Hunt Wagon Company was right there, just outside of what is present-day Casper, Wyoming, at the last crossing of the Platte River 
in Wyoming, more than 300 miles by trail from Salt Lake City. And when we talk about those who carried people across icy rivers, and we talk about their heroism, Barnard was among those who carried people across the icy waters of the Platte in the middle of that first great storm to safety on the other side. For the next two months, starvation and death were the constant companions of the Hunt Company. At one point, Barnard and his sister Elizabeth were so reduced to rations that they were receiving only a teaspoon of flour a day. Can you imagine? Nevertheless, and I can't even comprehend how, somehow they struggled on. Their sufferings must have been beyond all description. Barnard would long remember and recall the feelings that he felt as he watched his mother trying to tend and care for starving, freezing children, crying for food. Finally, December 13th, 1856, the Hunt Company entered Salt Lake City. Now, mind you, December 1856, the snow atop Big Mountain where the trail came was over 20 feet deep. It was higher than the bows of the wagon. Men had to come out of Salt Lake City and go single file, tramping down the snow, plowing through it, tramping it down, shoveling it out, blazing a trail to get the hunt company in. They were the last ones to come in. And knowing that they were coming, residents of the city turned out filled with compassion to take these suffering saints in and nurse them back to health. As they saw them come in, many wept at the deplorable condition of these immigrants. Barnard walked down the street, through the well-wishers, through the saints there to greet them, glad to be safe, but embarrassed. Why was Barnard embarrassed? because he had no boots. His feet, his wounded feet, were wrapped in flannel rags. Why were his feet wrapped in flannel rags? Because back in Wyoming, Barnard had cut his boots into strips and ate them. You can say what you want. But to keep the faith after enduring all of that makes this man, this boy, a hero to me. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.